The rest of us are in John chapter 3. We're in the uh, dialogue, the discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus. And so we're going to read the whole thing there again, um, even though we're going to focus on 9 through 15 this morning. As Eric carries children out. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher and come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would give us eyes to see, that You would give us ears to hear, that we would not find ourselves in the predicament of Nicodemus, but that we, by the power of Your Spirit, would understand that which Jesus is saying. Not only understanding, but that we would be among those who believe what Jesus is saying. That we would rest our lives upon his words, for he alone has the words of life. There is no one else to whom we can go. And we ask this in his name. Amen. I was in, as you might imagine, <clears throat> a discussion with some people who didn't like Calvinism. And I didn't want to spend too much time on this particular discussion. But one of the things that was said to me in this discussion was this. God is my God, not the Bible. There he's making sort of an allegation, an odd sort of allegation, that somehow the Bible is my God and therefore the God of Calvinists. That's kind of an odd thing. But we should be people of the book. Should we not? How are we to know 
who God is apart from the Bible. Really, we have no way of knowing who God is apart from the Scriptures. We might have some nice, fanciful ideas in our own minds about what perhaps God should be, but that does not mean that that is the true God. The Scriptures claim to be God's revelation of Himself, so that man who is blinded by sin can come to a knowledge of the truth about who God is and what God has done. That's where we kind of come into the text this morning. There is going to be sort of a question as to whose testimony should be believed. And the issue here is not Calvinism versus Arminianism or anything like that. But the issue is, who is Jesus? What are we to believe with regard to our, our salvation? It is to the Scriptures that we must go because it is in the Scriptures that God speaks to his people, and particularly where Jesus speaks to his people. The big idea this morning is that the Son of Man reveals himself and how we are to be saved. You have a bonus point this week. we got four for you, but they'll be shorter than the usual three, I think. So, the first thing I want us to grapple with this morning is that the Son of Man bears testimony to what he knows. Let's remember at the beginning of this conversation, Nicodemus comes to him and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so there's certain things that Nicodemus thinks he and the other Pharisees or Sadducees not Sadducees, Sanhedrin, no. But of course, they're a little bit off. They, they, they're, they're close, they're moving in the right direction. They know he's from God, but they have not yet arrived to the reality that he is himself God the Son. Jesus here, just as he did earlier in chapter 2, is about to reveal himself to be the Son of Man. We're going to see that in verse 13. Now the Son of Man, we have to remember Daniel. We have to think back, Daniel 7. This mysterious figure who shows up before the Ancient of Days and all of the power of all the kingdoms is given to him. He is the long-awaited Messiah and ruler. That's one of the, the pictures of him in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is claiming here not to be a human being. But Jesus is claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of Man. But he expresses this in a slightly different way here. He is also the revealer of who he is. You'll note that Jesus replies to this additional question of Nicodemus uh, here in verse 9. Oh, sorry, 10. Oh, no, he actually said it later. Don't worry. Truly, truly. Third time in this conversation that he's, he said these words. Greek, amen, amen. Okay, may it be so. He's expressing the reality that is truth. You really need to listen. And so when Jesus says truly, truly, part of us needs to go, I need to pay attention. Nicodemus, for the third time here, really needs to pay attention. Because he has not been getting what Jesus has been saying. And so it to use an old word, behooves us 
to really pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. And now he begins to mimic Nicodemus. I think that's probably the best way of understanding this. When he says, Nicodemus says, we know that you're a teacher. Jesus is now going to start using we, not I. Now, one, op- one option would be that he's talking about the testimony of the Father in addition to his own, but it could be that he's just reflecting back the speech patterns of Nicodemus and says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Jesus here is not expressing an opinion. He's not expressing a possible interpretation of Scripture. He is speaking truthfully, and as completely as he can about something that Nicodemus needs to listen to, that he needs to know, that he needs to believe. And he was, I think, referring, of course, to the discussion of the new birth, the fact that you must be born again. He speaks about what he knows. I was watching this show that was, uh, it's a fictional show, but it's set right after the Civil War, and it's about the, the westward expansion, particularly the railroads. And so here's this uh, one, the main character who's from the south, and he's speaking to a man who is in the Calvary, who was from the north, and talking about the Battle of Antietam, and the, the Yankee, I'm a Yankee, so I, I can say this, he was talking about how they really in the South, and how Johnny Reb picked up and ran away, and as if uh, he was an expert to know exactly why the rebel, the Southerners ran away in that particular battle. And the main character says, I was there. I know why we ran away. We ran out of bullets from killing all you Yankees. <laughs> I don't know if that was actually true, if that was just a little bit of uh, artistic license on the part of the script writers, but the point is that one person was there and knew why, and one person thought he knew why something happened. Nicodemus is one who thinks he knows things, but Jesus is the one who knows things. You understand the distinction here? Not only does he speak of what he knows, but We bear witness to what we have seen. Jesus is essentially claiming eyewitness testimony, which is odd when the discussion has been about the new birth. (laughs) Jesus is able to perceive these things in a way in which Nicodemus is not able to perceive these things. That makes perfect sense when we recognize that Jesus, as we talked about earlier, anointed by the Holy Spirit, baptizes people in the Holy Spirit. He sends the Spirit to do this work. He knows those whom He has sent the Spirit to to give new life. He knows. He doesn't just have an opinion about this. Now, in light of these bold statements, Jesus sort of clarifies a few things and refutes some Jewish superstition, perhaps, in the meantime. There's sort of this odd phrase that takes place. In here, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What Nicodemus does not recognize is who he is talking to. He thinks he's talking to a mere preacher, rabbi, 
gifted preacher or rabbi, does not understand with whom he really has to do. I was listening to uh, Mike and Mike years ago, and they had on a basketball player, retired basketball player and current analyst, Tim Legler. If you don't follow basketball, here's the only thing you need to know. He was a three-point specialist, which means that he stood very far away from the basket, behind a line, and waited, waited until he was open. He would catch the ball and shoot and drain three-point shots. Okay? That was his job. He told this story about how one day he was uh, going to... to play some pickup games of basketball, goes to the local sports shop to get his basketball filled, and while he's there in line, this guy sees this, you know, late 30, early 40 white dude and starts talking trash to him about how he's going to take him out on the court and he's going to destroy him. And the, the guy at the counter is going, do you know who this is? And he keeps trying to, do you know who this is? <laughs> NBA player, NBA player, you, not NBA player. Nicodemus doesn't get who he's talking to. Doesn't understand the this, this seriousness of these conversations. He is the son of man. And he says that there's only one who is qualified to speak of these heavenly things precisely because he has descended from heaven. Augustine, in talking about this sentence, says, There you are. He was here and he was in heaven. He was here in the flesh. He was in heaven in his divinity. Or rather, everywhere in his divinity. Because that's really a very interesting statement. No one has ascended into heaven. And of course, that, that's sort of a perfect tense for those of you who care about these verbal things, this grammar stuff. The idea that not only did he go up, but he stayed there. Okay, that's the idea. That's in mind. He who descended is sort of more of a simple past. It's an act. It's something that happened. And so he has descended, but really his ultimate final residing place is in heaven. And so Jesus took on flesh, tabernacled among us, but even when he was doing that, because he is fully God, he is also, with pertaining to his divinity, is everywhere, including in heaven. And so this is why he is qualified to speak about these heavenly things. He's not a guy who went into the desert, sat in a cave, fasted for 40 days, and had all sorts of strange revelations that he's now going to speak. He has been there. He's still there. He's qualified to speak. And so Jesus' testimony is reliable precisely because of his nature and where he comes from, heaven. Secondly, I want us to think about this, that God declared truth is met with stubborn, sinful unbelief. This is the, the downside of things. This is sort of the, the bad news, that God's declared truth is met with this stubborn, sinful unbelief. See, Nicodemus' unbelief is going to be persistent throughout this conversation. We see it right there in verse 9. How can these things be? In other words, how can the Spirit give life to people? Because we're talking about that idea of being born again. And from Jesus' perspective, this is a very elementary teaching. 
This is not an advanced sort of doctrine. There was the promise that we talked about last week in Ezekiel 36. But there's also promises like in Deuteronomy 30. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And so uh, this, I, this promise of the circumcision of the heart, which is do, done not with hands by man, but done by God himself, is not a New Testament idea, as some of my Baptistic friends think it is. It is an Old Testament idea that finds fulfillment in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. And it is a picture of what it means to have a heart of stone removed and replaced with a heart of flesh. It's removing, it's cutting away the hardness of one's heart so that what is left is tender and able to respond to God. And so those are two pictures of the very same thing. And so Nicodemus, who's supposed to be the teacher of Israel, should understand these things. He should grasp them. And so there is sort of that statement by Jesus here, which is meant to prick him, because Jesus is incredulous that the teacher of Israel does not understand these elementary things. As he says, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet do not understand these things? A longer way of saying, How can this be? To mimic Nicodemus. How can it be that you, the teacher of Israel, don't get this? I'm reminded of Hebrews 5, and this would be said of Nicodemus, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Nicodemus needed help. Jesus is here to offer it, but it is being met with resistance. Jesus shifts to the plural Something we, we miss in the English. That's one of the weaknesses of our language. You, plural, do not receive our testimony. You, plural, do not believe. You know I am a teacher sent by God, he says. You don't receive what I'm teaching. You don't believe what I'm teaching. You don't believe I am who I say I am. Nicodemus and those uh, like him were refusing to accept the testimony of Jesus. We see the plural indicates that this is a pervasive problem. It's not just a Nicodemus problem. This is a people problem. We see it today. I mean, there are billions of people. Hear the claims of Jesus. Don't receive the claims of Jesus. It's a pervasive problem. The perfect tense here indicates that this unbelief is a persistent problem. It's an ongoing kind of problem. Now, we know later that Nicodemus may have believed. The scriptures don't say that. But Nicodemus went with Joseph of Arimathea and buried Jesus. So there, there may be hope that he did experience the second birth and did indeed believe in Jesus Christ and, and became a faithful follower of him. But at this point, he's not. He's persisting in his unbelief. Unbelief, why is it sinful? Why did I say, I mean, obviously the persistence points to the stubbornness of, of unbelief, but why is it sinful? 
It is sinful precisely because it declares that God is a liar and that mere men know the truth better than him. 1 John chapter 5. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Meaning now you also partake of the testimony. You're able to offer that testimony that John talks about at the very beginning of his epistle. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And so unbelief says... not only I don't believe you, what you're saying is not true. And so he, in a sense, at this point, he's essentially calling Jesus very close to being a liar. Now, we'll we'll give him the benefit of the doubt here because he doesn't understand these things. But there are people who... <clears throat> don't claim to not understand. I mean, they're, 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 there are some people who go, I don't know, I don't understand all this. Okay, they're not making God out to be a liar so much, but there are those who are hardened in, that's not true. Jesus isn't this. Jesus isn't that. Jesus hasn't done this. Jesus can't do that. Those are the people who ultimately are making God out to be a liar. Because they're saying, do not trust in him. The other person's going, I don't know, I'm not sure yet. But they're moving not necessarily in the right direction. Unbelief refuses to accept God's testimony about himself. It is therefore stubborn and sinful. Thirdly, worse news. Well, worse news than really good news. The Son of Man bears God's wrath for sinners. It is here that Jesus, in the midst of Nicodemus' uncertainty and his unbelief, that Jesus instructs him through a rather obscure story from the Old Testament that we read about in Numbers 21 to reveal precisely how it is that people are going to be saved. It's a very interesting story. I like this story. If you remember what Marty read, you remember that they had just attained another great victory. They're not in the promised land. This is during the wilderness wanderings. This is where they want to go into the promised land, but they can't because they, of their unbelief. But God is st- continuing to be with them and protect them, uh, you know, just like we sang about. Um, so it's another great victory, but what happens is the people are frustrated with waiting. And so they begin to grumble again. This, this is a pattern for them. This is not an isolated incident for them. They begin to grumble. Why did you lead us out of Egypt? Did you bring us here to die? Why can't we go back? You know, all of that kind of stuff. And in response to their unbelief and their ingratitude, God sends serpents. Deadly serpents. This morning, providentially, we had a serpent. (laughs) It was only one, not a swarm of serpents, if there is such a thing. 
Um, so I would not say that you know we're under the judgment of God because we had one rattlesnake that the deacons quickly dispatched. Okay. But if you're like me, you you think back to Indiana Jones. <laughs> When he peers over there, he drops the torch down into the hole there and goes, snakes, I hate snakes. And so if I was one of those Israelites and all of a sudden there are all these serpents running around everywhere biting people, I would be a very unhappy, fearful man. And I suspect many of you would be too. I mean, geez, one little three-foot rattlesnake in my backyard was getting me all weak-kneed, you know? Anyway, this snake, these snakes rather, come. And after many deaths, the people cry out to Moses. They plead with Moses. And what's interesting is they admit that they have sinned. Okay, they admit that, that they, God was right in sending this judgment. So let's get away this idea that God is just sort of capricious and mean in the Old Testament, and he does these horrible things they recognized that this was an act of judgment upon their sin because they spoke against God and they spoke against his, spoke, his mediator, Moses. Okay, so they plead with Moses, go talk to God, let's make this thing right, please. And so Moses is told by God to make a copper or bronze snake. Uh, the word that is used can mean both of those things. The copper snakes, uh, probably most likely at that point. <clears throat> the reason why is that there have been various archaeological digs in the ancient Near East in that place, and, are, and those sites were from about that time, and they found in some temples little copper snakes. So, he used to take the, the, the sign of, because, I mean, of course, remember, the serpents are, God's are a sign of God's wrath against his, his people for their wickedness. He, they are to take the symbol of his wrath and to place it upon the pole, and that those who look to the pole will be delivered from the deadly venom of the snakes, assuming that they have been struck by the snakes. As an interesting side note in all of this, we see from 2 Kings 18 that the people began to worship the bronze snake. Now, this is hundreds of years later, but we read that in Second uh, Kings 18, starting in verse 4, he, referring to King Hezekiah, removed the high places and bronze pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehush. They turned it into an idol. That's how desperately wicked these people were. They turned God's means of salvation for them in the desert, in the wilderness, into an idol in the place of God. But, let's think about this for a moment. Why does Jesus bring up this story? What does unbelief bring? What does all sin bring? The wrath of God. We mentioned in our um, words of assurance that uh, from Hebrews that Christ, who came the first time to die for sin, is now is then going to come to deliver his people. And 
that's the good news. The bad news is if you're not his people, because he comes with wrath. Jesus will return and bring in God's wrath against all who persist in their unbelief and sin. So, this is part of why we see the fact of we must be born again. And it's interesting, the similar construction. Jesus says, you must be born again. Okay, this is a necessity, and it's a passive thing. It happens to you. And he says, the Son of Man must, same word, conveying this, it's a necessity, the Son of Man must be lifted up. It's something that happens to him. Just like Moses lifted up the snake or the serpent upon the staff. Each time the agent of destruction is placed upon the pole, symbolizing the curse. We can't help but think of Galatians 3, which, which we read already. That he redeems us from the curse by becoming a curse. For every, everyone that, has, that is lifted up on a pole is cursed, according to the testimony of the law. And those of you who were in Sunday school saw interesting examples of that. Because uh, Mike had the reliefs from, uh, was it the British Historical Museum? Showing the, what the Assyrians did. These are Assyrian reliefs. They carved in what they did to the people they defeated. The vassals who rebelled and brought upon themselves the covenant curses. And they stuck them. There's this whole section of a bunch of people impaled on poles because of their disobedience after their city has been conquered. They siege. Now, this idea of lifting up has, it's sort of got two aspects to it. There's the one aspect of <clears throat> exalted, but there's also an aspect of condemnation. Isaiah 52, oddly enough, sort of combines these two things. Verse 3, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And so there in Isaiah 52, he's sort of pointing ahead a little bit to what's going what's to be more clear in Isaiah 53. But the idea is that his servant has been lifted up and the reason that his servant is lifted up is because he has been he has suffered for his people in a way of to save them so that he might sprinkle many nations cleanse many nations save many nations and so the cross points both to his exaltation and his humiliation Great glory awaits Jesus, the Son of Man, after he bore the curse for sinners. Fourth, not third, fourth. Trust in the Son to receive life. Jesus then shifts to the purpose of this lifting up, the instrument of salvation, faith. You see, it wasn't just that Moses had to put a serpent on there and just stick it in the ground. The people, in order to be delivered from the serpent, had to look at it. And looking at it required faith. Faith that God would do what he promised to do. It wasn't magic. 
They're taking God at His word and acting on it. And God said, if you're bit, look, and you'll be safe. It'll be okay. And so there were many Israelites who were bit, and they looked. But knowing that God consistently calls them a stubborn and stiff-necked people, I'm sure there were many who didn't look. There's the snake. And they remained in their pain and agony, refusing to look, not believing that God could deliver them in that particular way. They doubted. Jesus in John 12 talks about this lifting up, and I guess I should have mentioned this earlier. And, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And John notes, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So there's the exaltation through his death upon the cross, and that is, that, that is, which, that is the means by which he draws all people to himself. The role of the Son of Man in our salvation includes this dying upon the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The lifting up of the Son of Man is meant to be the ground of our salvation. And by that I mean it is the basis for our being born again or regenerated. If He's not lifted up upon the cross, we can't be born again because the outpouring of the Spirit is a result of Christ's purchase of salvation for us. They are connected. And so as I mentioned last week, Jesus is sort of working backwards in terms of the, um, the plan of salvation. He's moving from regeneration to now his death, and next week he's going to get to God's election and his purposes. Uh, okay, But right now it's the focus of uh, what he does. The Spirit won't do what he does unless Christ first does what he does. And so it's the ground of our faith. He purchases our faith, so to speak. Not only that, but the lifting up of the Son of Man is also the object of our faith. It is what we are to believe. It is, he is the one to whom we must look. He is the one, as it says earlier, we must receive. And so, do you believe? Or do you look? When your sin bites back and you feel the guilty conscience, when you feel the weight of condemnation, where do you look? Is it to the one who has been lifted up for our salvation? Or do you look to something else? To someone else? Those who refuse to believe in the Son of Man will remain under the wrath of God. But those, here's the good promise, those who receive Him receive eternal life. And that is a life that begins in this present age. We don't receive the fullness of all of it, but we receive the foretastes of it, seen in the fact that we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit who then resides within us. Sometimes we're not sure what eternal life is. John 17, verse 3 tells us, and this is eternal life that they know You, the one true God. Sorry, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. And so eternal life, according to John 17, is knowing God. Knowing the Father and knowing the Son. Not knowing about. <laughs> knowing. 
there's a difference. As you might know, I read. I read biographies. Not as many as I probably should. Some of you want to hear more biographical stuff in sermons, not my autobiographical stuff. But when I read a book, or I'm reading one about Thomas Boston right now, I don't know Thomas Boston. I'll gain information about Thomas Boston. But I do not know Thomas Boston. I cannot pick up the phone. Of course, he's dead, but even if he was alive. Hey, it's Steve Cavallaro. How are you doing today? Hey, are you free for lunch? I want to hang out with you and spend some time and let's encourage one another. Can't do that. Knowing God is like being able to pick up the telephone and the voice on the the person on the other end recognizes your voice and you recognize their voice. In fact, Jesus says that in John 10. My sheep know my voice. And we don't do it with a phone, but that's what prayer is about. You know God, and one way that it manifests itself is prayer. You also know when He speaks in Scripture. You, you listen to when He speaks in Scripture. So that's the idea of eternal life. Not just that you have some facts that you've accumulated along the way about who God is, so that when you get into an argument with someone, you can go, oh yes, I know. That's not the point. The point is knowing Him as a person, being known to him as a person. And the Father and the Son are essentially a package deal. You cannot have one without the other. John 17 joins them in terms of our knowledge. We know the Father. We know the one he has sent, the Son. First John chapter 2. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Or as Jesus says in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to know the Father, and that is through the Son, through faith in the Son. That's the clear testimony of Scripture in a number of places. And we have to reckon with that. And for those of us who believe it, we rejoice in that. So Jesus testifies or bears witness to himself and salvation. He declares that he is the Son of Man that was spoken of in Daniel. He comes to reveal the truth about God and to be the only Savior. To be dying on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. The problem, of course, is that unbelief is pervasive and persistent. To this day, billions make Jesus out to be a liar. Those who remain in such a stubborn, sinful unbelief remain under the wrath of God. But to those who look to Christ, to the many billions who do, to save them and receive, will receive eternal life. And so, will you look by faith? Will you continue to look by faith? For it's not about one little glance. It's about a steadfast gaze upon Him who is our salvation. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that in the midst of some difficult news here, that we're going to even look at again in the next week or two, there's news of great salvation. There is news of joy to be celebrated. We ask that we would have a greater experience of this great salvation that Jesus has purchased for us. So that we, in all of our fears, our doubts, our guilt, we would look to Him, seeing Him lifted up, exalted and glorious as the Savior of sinners. That we would experience in greater measure the blessings of salvation, recognizing that it is only by faith that we experience these things. And so may we busy ourselves, so to speak, in looking to Christ and finding rest and hope, peace and joy, forgiveness, righteousness in Him and Him alone. So that we could become a people that is increasingly remade in His image and likeness. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.